Turn with me to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. We continue our study in the book of Mark. We'll be looking at chapter 13 in its entirety today, which is going to be a a big jump for us considering we've been spending three and four and five weeks in one chapter. But this whole chapter kind of ties all together. And uh, we're going to, we'll see that plainly. And this, uh, frankly, is one of the hardest chapters in the New Testament. So as we go through that, to kind of keep that in mind, we have all these presuppositions when we come to a text like this, as you'll see as we look through it. And so just we're just going to pray that the Lord would help us as we go to it. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word today, we come to a section of the word that sometimes excites us because it has to do with end times and things that involve the end and it oftentimes excites the wrong parts of us like the parts of us that worry and lord help us to not worry but instead see you to see you glorified to see you lifted up we pray lord that you would give us the wisdom to do so that the clarity of your word would come through to our to our hearts that are far from clear so many times that you would use your word to pierce even to our very souls that we might be convicted of our sin and that we might grow closer to you we pray this in your name amen so as we get into this text there's going to be a section of it that where Jesus talks about the pains of birth, and it made me think about when our own children were born and the different stories surrounding each one. When Anna was born, I remember the day that we, well, I woke up at like 4 a.m. and I heard the hairdryer going, and I thought, well, that's different. That's probably means, I wonder if, you know, she doesn't normally get up that early. And so I guess that hit me. We're probably having a baby today. Well, and then with Kate, well, Kate, Emily was induced, so it was a lot faster and the, the whole timeline sped way up and so it was so much different than the previous one and then with Jenny I think I knew that she was in labor before she did because I could by then I knew the signs I knew what to look for and I think she was just in denial but uh here we go she was in denial because it was her birthday and she didn't want to share uh, those are her words not mine so <laughs> so while all this talk again about labor and delivery well, because Jesus talks about it in our text today, and he uses it as a very clear illustration which about the subject, which is the end times. And I say the end times, but really there's two events that are in clear view here in this text, and that is the return of Christ at the end of days and the destruction of Jerusalem, which occurred in 70 A.D., you know, several thousand years ago. As the disciples walk through the temple area during this Passover week, as we've been going through the last few weeks, they're like any Jewish person. They couldn't imagine it all being destroyed one day. And Jesus teaches them that that's exactly what's going to happen. He helps them to see that they had to be prepared, that they had to be watching for the signs that were occurring all around them. And so just like the labor before childbirth, there were signs that point to the actual thing occurring. Yet, just like before the birth of a child, though the labor may be clear, there's no predicting how long that's going to last, when the actual birth is going to occur. It could be soon, it could be long. 
Ultimately, whether we're talking about childbirth or the second coming of the Son of God, only God knows when those things are actually going to take place. And so as we look through the text, we're going to have to hack through, again, a lot of our presuppositions. When we come to a text like this, we've all heard so many things over the years because people just love to talk about this business. And so we have to be very observant about the text, look at what it's saying to us. We have to be careful when we're handling it. We're going to see that we have a responsibility when it comes to the second coming of our Lord and how we have to change the way that we act. At the center of it, of course, is Christ who keeps his promises, who is patient with the sinful people even to this day. So as we'll divide the text into three different points, the signs are clear, the return is final, and then lastly, the work is incomplete. So with that, let's look together at the text. Mark chapter 13, starting at verse 1. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Mark 13, verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in the name, in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. The nation, for nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines. But these are the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. You will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and child and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved." But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to his cloak. For alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and will never be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders and lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will 
will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then you will see, or they will see, the Son of Man coming in the clouds, great power and glory. And then he will send out angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth, and from the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that it is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge, each his own work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So there's a lot there. A whole lot. Remember, in preceding weeks, all the way back to when Jesus walked through the temple. Remember when they got to Jerusalem after the long journey to Jerusalem to end, to, toward the end of Jesus' life, which we're coming to shortly in this book. He walked through the temple. And he looked around at all the things. And the next day he went into the temple and he cleansed the Gentile courts of the money changers and, and those who were making trade. And it was building momentum, this idea of Jesus being in the temple. And he, he went into the temple and he debated all the scribes and the Pharisees. The temple itself had not only been desecrated, but those who claimed responsibility and authority to keep it had desecrated it themselves with their false teaching and their unholy living. So you can imagine this as Jesus, who is the great high priest of his people, as he walked among the temple, as he debated with its officials, it becomes clear, just as you read through chapter 12 in particular, that something is off about the temple, about the current state of the Jewish religion in general. And this historically has even been building at this time in Jerusalem. You go back through their history and you read. It's just there's this constant change in the temple worship and the people who are in it and involved in it. Second century BC, there was a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, who was this Hellenistic king, which was like a Greek king over Syria, and they came into Jerusalem and sacked it and then desecrated the temple. And the way that Antiochus in particular desecrated the temple was by placing a pig on the altar. Which, of course, you know, understanding the Bible's prohibition on the Jewish people eating pork, the holiness that is placed in the temple, this would have been a major slap in the face of the Jewish people. And it caused this major uprising called the Maccabean Revolts, which was a short-lived time for Jewish autonomy. But over and over, even since then, Rome comes in, takes over Jerusalem. They allow Jewish worship for a time, which is kind of this time that we're in in the scriptures right now. But real shortly thereafter, particularly as you get into the book of Acts, they're not going to do that anymore. And so as we do this, as we come to this chapter in Mark chapter 13, we have to be really careful that we don't let our current newspapers influence us, but that we understand what first century Judaism was like, what first century Jerusalem was like, and the news that was going on there. And I think it will help us to get a better picture 
of what Jesus is talking about here. And so with that, the first point, the signs are clear. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to them, Do you not, do, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. You can kind of imagine this. The disciples were country folk. They were probably in awe of all of the crowds that were in Jerusalem. The temple in general, this magnificent building, uh, the, the city, which would have been, you know, a really big city compared to the Jewish countryside. And so on their way out of the temple, they kind of, they kind of voice this growing astonishment of what they felt the whole time that they've been in there. And one of them finally just bursts at the scenes and says, look, Jesus, everything in here is so cool. Look at the stones. Look at the buildings. Remember the first time I saw a skyscraper, right? And I'm just like, whoa, that was big. I grew up in the Boot Hill of Missouri where everything is completely flat. And so to see these big structures for the first time, it just took my breath away. And so you can kind of imagine what the disciples are feeling here. They're like, wow, these these are magnificent buildings. Look at them, Jesus. Well, Jesus goes in a completely different direction. You expect him to say, yeah, they're nice or something like that, but he doesn't. He tells them that they're going to be destroyed. In fact, no stone will be left on another that kind of destroyed. And then they walk together back to the Mount of Olives, which was about a half a mile or so away from the Temple Mount where they were. So you can imagine, these disciples, they had this excitement, they're look at these buildings, they're really cool, and Jesus said, well, they're all going to be destroyed. And so for the next half mile walk, the disciples are probably thinking, what did he mean? That's really weird. What? All these buildings are going to be destroyed? And so finally, it just kind of breaks, and they can't help it anymore. Teacher, what did you mean when you said this? We see that there in verse 4. Tell us when these things will be. And what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? They want to know. You know, this kind of feeling starts with us as children, right? When we, when the kids are like, when are we going to be there? You know, we go to my, I've been to my parents with my kids probably a hundred times. It's a two hour trip. But every single time, when are we going to get there? Well, you see, we have to pass through, you know, I, I tell them the same things every time. They just, there's this anticipation. All right. And then, you think about that, how that builds over the course of your adult life. You know, even think about child labor. Well, how will I know that I'm in labor? That's something you want to know, right? Or when we, we all experience severe weather, right? Well, how do I know that the weather's particularly bad, that I really need to watch out? We all under, we all want to understand the signs of the things that we are experiencing. And so Jesus has this answer for them. And it has both near implications for them, both meaning something they're going to experience in some, for some of them in their lifetimes. And then also there's this far up implication for something that is yet to come. And so it's just a disclaimer as we go into this next section. I've studied this thoroughly. I've read other guys who have studied this thoroughly and I've come to my own conclusions on this text and that's what I'm going to share with you. I'm going to give you an overview of it. But if you have questions, by all means, let's talk about it afterwards. Because these, when you read something about this abomination of desolation and all this stuff, if you just search for that on the internet, you will get every kind of quirky circus act that you could possibly read. And then you're going to get some good stuff too. And it's really hard to weed through that. And so just encourage you, if you have questions, come ask. We'll talk about it. 
So anyway, the disciples are basically asking, when are these buildings going to be destroyed? And if you think about that, that has far-reaching applications. It's not that just the temple is going to be destroyed, but if the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed, what else is going on? There's some sort of great catastrophe that is associated with this. All right, Jerusalem itself is going to have to be destroyed in order for this to go on. And so Jesus gives some clues. And he categorizes these clues as the beginnings of birth pains, which we kind of talked about in the introduction. It's a sign that something's going to happen. How long is that going to last? Well, only God knows. And he closed up this discussion. He went into this lesson on the fig tree. You know, that the fig tree has signs, that it's summer, right? That it, it kind of blooms. That summer, that summer is nearing, that you can start to see those signs. And so he points to several things in that text. Verse 7, And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet coming. For a nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. But these are the beginnings of birth pains. When we read this, we're like, oh wow, that sounds really serious, right? Wars, earthquakes, famines. Were these things new to the disciples? When Jesus said war, did they know what he was talking about? Sure, they knew of wars. They were Jews, right? They had been conquered so many times by this point. It was kind of old hat. They knew about wars. Did they know about famines? Did they know about earthquakes? Absolutely. None of these things were new. These things have already been happening. And they were happening, they're happening even to this day. So Jesus is quick to say, see that no one leads you astray. Why would he say that? Because he knows that when people see things like these earthquakes, when they see things like these wars and these rumors of wars and these famines, that someone's going to rise up and they're going to say, here's this great problem. It's the end of time. You should follow me because I have all the answers. Lots are going to claim that they know what's going on and they're going to show themselves to be false prophets over and over again. That happened then. We're all familiar with the fact that this happens today as well. There are lots of books that are no longer sold in the prophecy section of Christian bookstores because, you know, they said the world was going to be ending in like 1982. Well, that's come and gone. And so those books no longer apply and that pretty much every year since I've been alive there's been a prediction I feel like because it's just not happened and so notice what the disciples are told here verse 9 be on guard be on guard for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues if you read the book of Acts this almost reads like a summary of the book of Acts And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be preached and proclaimed to all nations. If you read through the book of Acts, it's almost like a summary of what's going on there. We studied through Acts. We saw this firsthand. You can read history to see that this indeed did happen. And it's happened really ever since those disciples in that early church gave their lives for the name of Jesus Christ. So at this point, we're still dealing with this ambiguity, right? What is Jesus talking about? When is he talking about? He's given the disciples a near answer 
to their question. There will be signs before Jerusalem is destroyed. But there are also going to be signs before Jesus comes back. And what follows, I think, starting at verse 14, is a very specific explanation of Jerusalem itself being sacked and the temple of Jerusalem being destroyed. So verse 14, look with that at, at, or look at that with me. When you, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And then he goes into detail how bad that's going to be. It's going to be a really rough time. That's why you ought to flee. And this verse has troubled people for centuries, but I think a little history helps. If you just look in the Old Testament in Daniel, Daniel chapter 9 and 11, they both have prophecies that are used this exact wording, this abomination of desolation. And these were prophecies in Daniel's time, but in Jesus' time, those things had already occurred. It had to do with this king of the north which was this king of Syria, Antiochus, that we talked about earlier, who was going to come in and desecrate the temple. And this desecration would be called the abomination of desolation. Yet, the disciples would need to continue to look out for this, because if you just continue to read through Jewish history, you know, Jesus is crucified 30-something A.D., and if you just keep reading, there's going to be more desecrations that happen to the temple. In 40 A.D., the current Roman emperor, who was named Caligula, if you read anything about him, uh, you know that he was not necessarily the most upstanding person. Well, he wanted to have a bust of himself placed directly on the altar of sacrifice in the Jewish temple. And so it was. And there were some peasants who tried to stand in their way, and they were all slaughtered. Well, in 68 A.D., the zealots, we talked about the zealots before, they raided the temple and they took it over and it used it as a fortress. And they appointed their own priest who was basically kind of this clown who was called a priest, but he didn't really even know how to be a priest. And so those final years before Jerusalem was set, the temple was an absolute abomination to the Lord. And Jesus is saying, when you see this, when you see the temple become an abomination, flee. Get out of there. When you see this, it's time to get out of the city. And then he uses this strong language. It's going to be horrible for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Hopefully this doesn't happen in winter because it's going to be that bad. You can imagine that there were lots of false prophets during these times, right? That would rise up and say, I'm the Messiah. I'm going to save you. Craving power for themselves. Jesus says this in verses 21 and 22. There's going to be many that will say, look, here's the Christ. Look, here he is. Do not believe it for false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders and lead astray if possible. Even the elect. I think it would be really easy to lose heart in this time, right? But what is the, what is Jesus telling his disciples? They need to understand. That where did power, where did their faith lie? Was it in Jerusalem, the city that they lived in or that they were in? Was it in the temple? Is that where the seat of power was? No, it was in Christ himself. And so Jerusalem, it didn't matter if it was there or not, because the seat of power and faith and authority was not there, but in Christ. 
I think this is important for us as well. In the next coming weeks, we're getting ready to have a change of power in our country, even to just the complete and utter horror of so many people who are Christians. As if the current president is the antithesis of this guy that's going to be elected. Just think about that for just a minute. That the guy that we have right now is good and the person that's coming in is bad. Would we ever even say that out loud? Silly things happen, just like the one I just named, when you think that the power rests with men or that power rests with the government. Silly things happen. It happened in the first century. It happens in the 21st century. This end is coming, absolutely. Jerusalem was destroyed. It's history now. America won't always be here. That'll be history one day. That much is clear. Yet what is it that our work is? It's to point to the to not point to the evil in the world. Look at that. It's a bad thing. But instead, point to Christ. That brings me to the next point. His return is final. Look with me at verses 24 through 27. But in those days, after that tribulation, so I think here he's kind of switching gears a little bit. The sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven. The powers in the heavens will be shaken. And we'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send out the angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth, and to the ends of heaven. This has a distinct different change to it, right? We studied a whole book over the last year that had this same sort of language. That was the book of Revelation. And he's talking about the, the end. But he's even said, you know, he says in a minute that this current generation will not pass away before they see those things. Well, obviously that current generation is in their grave. And so when he says that, he was talking about the temple that was going to be destroyed in about 40 years. But here he's talking about the son of man himself coming back. We saw these kinds of pictures as we looked in Revelation, right? The darkness, the sun will turn to darkness. The moon will not give its light. Even the stars were going to fall from the from the sky and hit the earth. What does that mean? Well, who originally put them up there? The Lord. And so we have this undoing of creation. We read from Psalm 147 this morning that he gave the stars names. Well, all these things are being undone as Christ prepares his return. And I think so many times when we read this, we get focused on those things, right? Oh, no. The sun is going to be darkened. The moon, it's going to, the stars are going to fall. And we want to know what that means. And we start thinking of all these excuses for what that could possibly be. And that's when we start to ask questions. Well, am I going to be here when that happens? Will it be worse for believers than it is for unbelievers? And so forth. You know all these questions. You've probably had them yourself. I know I have. And what do we do when we ask those questions? Well, we show our worry. We show our fear for this life rather than our hope that we have for the life to come. And this is normal when you read things like falling stars and the sun being dark. And this isn't an everyday occurrence, right? Yet, there is something that we might miss if we get hung up on how could stars possibly fall from the earth. Look with me at 26 and 27 again. They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds. From the ends of the earth, the Son of Man will descend. All the elect, all of his people will be gathered up. And I don't think this is a calling away 
from the earth, but rather gathering together to one place. That's not what it's not what's being said here that we're going to be called away necessarily. But understand what else is going on. If all the elect are being gathered to one place, what does that mean for the non-believer? That they're all going to be separated from them. And there's going to be this moment of judgment. The second coming of Jesus is this final moment in history. It's the culmination of all of these signs that we have seen before. It's kind of like, like the birth of a child is the culmination that started at conception and now ends with birth. It's the final act. Once the baby is born, it can't go back. There's a pointed time for it, and at that point, the act is complete. The baby is born. It's not going, it can't, it can't start over. And so when Jesus comes back, that's the end. There's no more. And look at verses 32 and 33. But concerning that day, or even that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven or the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when this time will come. Jesus prepares his disciples. He prepares, prepares us for that finality. No one knows when this is going to happen. Even Jesus here in his, in his incarnate, as the incarnate son, the, the Jesus, the man, he wasn't privy to this information. Jesus in his human nature was fully human. He experienced anticipation of this just like we do. So consider this. You know something is going to happen for sure. And I think this is the, this is the catching point for us as believers. We know this is going to happen, right? We know that Jesus is going to come back. And we know the ramifications of it. What are the ramifications of it? That he's going to gather up his own and that all those who aren't his are going to be judged for all eternity. Yet, we don't know when it's going to happen. We can't know when it's going to happen. Others have tried to know and they have failed, of course. There's just no knowing. And so if you have this information, this great and final thing is going to happen. There's no way of knowing when it's going to happen. How then do you act? Do you wait? Do you think, well, I know it's not going to happen tomorrow. Do you? Or do you prepare? As a child of God, we aren't really given an option as to what we are doing. He tells us over and over what we should be doing. That brings me to the last point. The work is incomplete. Look at verses 34 through 37. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home, puts his servants in charge, each with his own work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake, be prepared. The instruction here for the disciples is to stay awake rather than to go to sleep on the return of Christ. They must be in constant preparation for that. And everything the church did from that point forward is in that preparation. If you look at the book of Acts in particular, I think that's why it's there for us to see that what they did in their entire lives was to prepare people for the coming of Christ. How did they preach? They preached with urgency. This is coming. Believe in this guy. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. He is the only way that you can have salvation. 
We don't need someone to tell us about five ways that we can have inner peace for today or anything dumb like that. But we need people who are going to tell us the truth. Tell us what I need to hear today because the end is coming. So Paul and Peter and others like them, they preached with urgency. They preached to people who needed marching orders, who needed to be sent on the mission. And so when we read Jesus' admonition here to stay awake, how do we classify our own readiness in this? Consider this as a person who is saved by the grace of God, a state from which no one can steal you. We talked about this in Sunday school today. But also consider this as a disciple who is sent out with a mission. As you consider history before and after Christ, and you consider your own life, consider your own sin, your own lack of hope, think about that for a moment. I know that Christ is coming, but why? Why would he come back? I haven't done anything. It's not like I've lived a great life. It's not like I've said, I've always done great. He should come back and get us now. The last time he came, he was nailed to a tree. He was cursed by his own people. Why would he want to come back? And that's the question we have to answer for ourselves. As you consider history, think about this. Why is he coming back? He's coming back because he made a promise to his people. Whether it be in the prophetic context here or in the context of the last meal with his friends, whatever the case, he said he was coming back. So in Christ, we have hope in that. We have hope in his second coming. If you read the words of the disciples in the New Testament, they say, you know, John, the last, some of the last words in the New Testament are, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We should long for that also. We should want that return. We shouldn't fear that. But while we are here, what should we be doing? We should stay awake. We should be prepared. We should be on mission. Our mission isn't to preach about the evils of the world. Yes, the world is an evil place. Absolutely. The people of the world who live here are bad. But so are you. Yet Jesus loves you anyway. He calls you his child. Why wouldn't you want to extend then that same free offer to those around you? who might not know that the Son of Man is coming back, who might not get it. They've probably heard it. They've probably heard all the crazy teachings surrounding chapters like this, right? But when he does, he's not coming back to say, okay, anyone who believes in me, come over here. Anyone who still doesn't want to believe, now that they know that I'm real, go over here. No, no. He's coming back to gather all of those who are his to himself, and all the others are going to be separated from him. For all eternity. So what are we doing? As a result of that. When it comes to the mission of God. Where do we stand? When he came the first time. He came that he might be an offering. For the sins of his people. For your sins and my sins. He came to fulfill the law. So that the people wouldn't have to. But next time he's coming with a sword. So in the meantime. We've all been called to go into the world. Making disciples. So that they can prepare for the coming Son of Man. The question for us then is, are we prepared? So in conclusion, for the unbeliever here, Christ's return is imminent. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, there's no knowing when he's going to come back. You are free to rest and wait. Absolutely, you are. You are free to hedge your bets on today or tomorrow. 
But you're also free to call upon Him for salvation. Call upon Him today and be saved. As a believer, what should these words do for us? These words that Christ is coming back and there's going to be these signs of the times. These are words of hope for us as believers. We should long for Christ's return. In the meantime, let us stay awake. There's work to be done. So let us do the work that we've been called to do. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to you, we pray that you would take us who are inadequate, inadequate to understand the signs that you have shown us, inadequate to understand the urgency of the gospel, and yet you have chosen to use us as your people, as your tools to do that very thing, to be on mission, to preach the gospel to an unknowing world that they might call upon the name of Jesus and be saved. Lord, we pray that you would help us with that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.